Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learn something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned. But because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to All I Know. This week, we're turning the tables, and I am going to ask questions of Jen. Hey. Hey. <laughs> My name is Jess, and I help produce the podcast, and I've known Jen for a really long time. I don't know if, like... We got a few years on our... We got a lot. Yeah. We got a lot. It's probably better not to, like, think about it too hard, because then we start doing calculations, and we're pushing two decades. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really pushing. Yeah. Like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> gives me heart palpitations. Listen, I'm not that old. Yeah. I'm not old enough to have known anyone that long. Um, are you ready? I'm ready as I'm going to be. All right, let's do it. Who are you? Do our listeners need to know about who you are to make the most out of our conversation today? Yeah. So, um, I am going to try and describe who I am without just more like characteristics without using any of my roles because I'm so apt to define myself by my roles. And I think it's really important not to do that because I'm a lot of things, even apart from the hats that I wear. So I would say uh, that I'm a very sensitive soul, and I think I'm a little bit of an old soul. Um, in the last year or so, I have discovered that I am an empath, 
And about a year before that, I learned that I'm a highly sensitive person. So I've got a sensitivity going on a few different levels. I'm an introvert. I really, really like to take adventures, but I am also a little bit of a homebody and I tease sometimes about being a house cat because I really <laughs> like my routine and my, you know, cozy little place in the world. But, um, I definitely like to get out there and see new things and be exposed to, to other stuff. So I'm an adventurer, but when I'm on adventure, I want to be home. And when I'm at home, I want to be on an adventure. Yeah. You're like Tommy, you pur- you purr in your own way when you're at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of us believe our lives are rather ordinary. Others of us think that we are living an extraordinary life. If you were to plot your life on the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where do you land? So I think that the truth probably is that my life is extraordinary, but I live in a place where I think of it as very ordinary because I focus on things like having bills to pay and duties to do and a job to go to and laundry and cleaning the house and setting goals and chasing after them. And all of that stuff feels really daily and ordinary to me. I just think that's mm-hmm. part of the human existence. To think that you're ordinary. Yeah. But I, I think probably in the grand scheme of things, if I'm able to pull back from my life and look at it more objectively, there are some things about it that are really extraordinary. And um, I know from a conversation we had off air, you totally don't agree with this, <laughs> but I think part of what sets my life on that extraordinary end is all the things that I've been spared. Like when you look at the world population and what so many people have to endure or or are exposed to in different parts of the world that I that's not part of my reality. I think it's part of what makes my life extraordinary. I think there are um, some opportunities, particularly around travel and education. When I think about travel and education, I think those are things that that set my life apart and tip it toward that extraordinary end of the spectrum. And I think one of the things that probably makes my life more extraordinary is just the number of people with whom I have had really intimate contact. As a counselor, I've done a lot of really sacred work with kids and families Mm -hmm. that are hurting. And so I think I have been, you know, let into the secret rooms of many people's hearts than is typical. Even before you were a counselor, you were doing that kind of sacred work. Yeah. I think that's kind of part of maybe how I'm wired or, and probably a big part of how I fell into the field in the first place. But I think that fact that I, that I am a keeper of so many stories, um, and that they're not, you know, once upon a time stories, (laughs) they're, they're very gut wrenching, painful, difficult, like the human, human existence and human suffering at its most intense puts my, puts my life on a more extraordinary end of the spectrum. But to me, it feels regular. Because it's your norm. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of the stories that you must be privy to, that they're at the 
completely opposite end of the once upon a time spectrum, the living nightmare kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you said that you think your education makes you extraordinary. Yeah. I think just access to education. Um, you know, I, and it's so interesting. I don't know why this sets with me and maybe after saying it and reflecting back, it'll sort of make sense to me later. But I think it's so interesting that I, you know, live and work now, you know, 10 or 15 miles from where I was educated from elementary school to middle school and high school. That's so interesting to me that I'm like living and working in the community that shaped me. And then of course, like, you know, higher education and having the opportunity to go to college. And then that I pursued master's work after that. Um, I think I'm probably guilty of taking those things sometimes for granted because I'm an American, (laughs) but there are moments when it kind of comes into sharp focus, how fortunate I am to have been in those institutions of higher learning and really expanding, you know, my mind and my knowledge base. And I don't even know how to finish that sentence, but that's kind of intense to think about once in a while. There's a lot of privilege that comes with that. When you mentioned education, what immediately came to mind for me was that uh, real world education mm. that you would have gotten from your life experiences and, mm-hmm. the, and the jobs that you well, had. Well, that too. Shoot. Yeah. yeah. But that's there for the taking for all of us, right? Everybody I has w- real world education at their fingertips. It's what do you do with it? Do you, do you take it? Do you integrate it? Do you gnaw on it? Do you let it transform you? And do you try to learn something from it? Or is it just something that happens and you kind of coast on by? Mm-hmm. Anything else on that? I don't think about so. what makes you extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you just decided that one for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I was hoping that was going to slide by. Yeah, no, no nice try. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about how you define success. Yeah. I, I love that we ask this question on the show. And I, I really like hearing what others have to say and play with it in my own mind in terms of how does that, how does that fit for me? To be honest, I really don't know how I define success right now. I think I have entered a stage of my adult life where there's a lot of things that are being kind of renegotiated and re I'm like rethinking things and reestablishing things and trying to decide. I mean, I guess I'm technically of middle age now. And so developmentally it's appropriate, right. That I'm having some of that angst and knocking some of these things around. But I, I really am not sure how I define success right now because there, there is a part of me that feels like I still buy into success being part of what you have to show for Mm. your life And I think for a lot of people that can be, you know, material gain and financial wealth. And I would be lying if I said, you know, I wasn't interested in those things too, because I absolutely am. But I, based on the nature of my work and where my career has taken me so far, there is a part of me that has a more, I don't know what the right word is, but 
um, a simpler or less complicated definition of success that just has to do with being in relationship to other people and trying to leave them better than you found them. And I don't know, those things don't always fit together so easily. Um, and there've been a lot of things in my own life that I've been after and chasing for a long time since my twenties that have not happened for me. And so it's, I'm in this phase now in my early forties where I have to sort of think through, well, does that mean I failed? Does that mean I haven't succeeded that these things that I wanted and had my eyes set on, you know, haven't happened and haven't played out in my life. Does that mean I'm a failure or am I successful in another way? So all of that is being renegotiated right now. I have no good answer for the definition of success. You're recalibrating success. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not having a clear answer. I love that part that you said about having authentic relationships with people where you're maybe not leaving them, but you're, you're both coming out of those relationships better, deeper, more positively than you were going into it. Yeah. I think that's the feeler in me and the, the counselor in me who the empath who likes that as a definition of success. Yeah. In a more broad perspective, what are the markers of a successful life then to you? Well, that was a big sigh. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. I know. I mean, I'll tell you how I think I would have answered 20 years ago. Being happily married, raising a family, financial security, couple of trips a year, and certainty about like a steady, stable retirement. Mm, Right. (laughs) That's what I would have said 20 years ago. But now that I don't feel really clear in this particular moment about my definition for success, I don't think I can give you the markers of a successful life because everything that I just rattled off are all things that are sort of up for negotiation and are being kind of held up to the light. And I'm trying to decide what I think about it now, 20 years later. What are the parts of your life right now that feel successful? I think the um, practice that I have built and the reputation that I've developed in the adoption community Meaning your private counseling practice. Mm-hmm. Um, n- you know, not, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> That's okay. But I think that I've really established some helpful relationships with some of the families that I work with over the years. And um, I feel good about the tone that I've set for the work that I do in the adoption community. And someone might choose not to do that work, but I feel really happy about the tone that I've set in terms of what you'll get if you're coming to see me. You know who you are professionally. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, interestingly, I never really wanted to have a private practice. I never wanted to be in business for myself. That was actually something I was expressly against even before I started grad school. And by the time I finished grad school and was working toward my licensure hours and 
know, spending more time on the clinical side of mental health, it inevitably became something that I felt like I needed to do to work the way that I wanted to work. And I had a couple of mentors who were really encouraging me to make that leap. And even then I didn't want to do it, but I'm a pleaser. That's probably something I should have, when you said, who are you? I'm a pleaser and I'm, I'm really good at, um, following directions from authority figures Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, those mentors, you know, specifically at that time and particularly around my career were saying, this is what you need to do. And so I did it kind of under duress, but I built something that I'm proud of. I was just going to ask you, do you regret doing it or do you feel good? No, no, it's been very expensive emotionally. Um, and it can be really lonely. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that I don't just do private practice and that I'm also working in the public sector is because I started to feel too isolated. Even when you're really purposeful about collaborating with other people and scheduling lunches so you can, you know, talk about cases and stuff like that, it's just not it's not the same as being in it with someone mm-hmm. and having a joint cause that you're working on together. And I started to feel, you know, pretty lonely for now. This works because I've got a balance of both. Yeah. I could totally see that. See how like the heaviness of the stories that you're privy to would take its toll when it's just you and you don't have anyone. Well, and learning about to, like un- share that burden with. Yeah. And learning about being an empath in the last year. So, I mean, I've been practicing a lot longer than a year and I have a much sharper focus now in terms of just how vulnerable I am to the energy in the room and what I carry. Um, it's part of, I think what makes me a good therapist is that I have this extra spidey sense that's kind of working overtime all the time. And it Mm -hmm. gives me a lot of information that never comes to me in words. And so that's great and very useful for my occupation, but it also costs me a lot. Oh, for sure. And I think I'm a lot clearer in the last, you know, 12 to 16 months about what it costs. And I'm practicing with how to take better care of myself in that because I don't want to shut my gift down. I want to keep my gift. I just don't want to spend so much to have it. Oh my gosh. I don't think you could ever shut that down. I feel like for people that don't know you in real life, like there is no being in the same room with you and you not picking up on something. Like if there's something off or there's like something not right, I feel like you always pick up when hard to hide from me. It is. Yeah. And I'm a pretty skilled hider of things <laughs> emotionally. And I don't have any place to hide when I'm with you. Like that's definitely a gift. Do you feel like in the last year and a half or so, since you realized that you were an empath and realized how um, sensitive of an empath you are, do you think that you are doing a better job of taking care of yourself? Uh-huh. That's such an unfair question like in awareness to ask on air. I, I don't know. I, the best thing I can say is I'm practicing because there's times when I'll reflect on my day and be like, way to go trying to look out for yourself at all. You basically just laid down on the railroad tracks and let them <laughs> run over you all day. 
and and then there's other there's other days where I reflect on the day and it's like I I try to do that differently. I thought about that differently. I tried to hold myself differently. I spent my energy differently, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think I'm still practicing figuring it out. Okay. So I think we've talked about what are the markers of a successful life and you're as saying, much as you're going to get from me. Yes. <laughs> right now that you TBD is what I'm saying. Determined. Yeah. Okay. What about, what are the three defining events, experiences, or themes in your life that you believe most shaped who you are and how your life has unfolded? Yeah. I love this question. I love asking this question and I'm always so excited to get the answers. And then when it's being asked of you, it's kind of like, whoa, yeah, (laughs) intense. I think I'm going to go with themes because when I try to look at events, too many events come to mind as like really pivotal things. And so I'm going to, I'm going to stick with themes. The first that I would say probably is my chosen profession and being in a service oriented field. I think at least for my adult life, that has really, really impacted the trajectory of my life all the way from finishing college up until now. When I look at the arc of that time And the work that I elected to do, I mean, I've learned a lot from it. And I think it has, for better or for worse, really shaped my worldview. I don't think I'm in danger of having rose-colored glasses when it comes to the world and humanity and what we're capable of doing to each other, even when we have really good intentions toward one another. And I think I was kind of a little bit idealistic. I mean, mm-hmm. I definitely was like a save the world kind of girl. You know, I, I remember actually somebody telling me when I was in my undergrad work that I needed to like get a grip on the idealism because I wasn't going to be able to save the world. And I was so offended and they were totally right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when you, you don't have that maturity, you don't know you know, what you're up against. So I would say my, my chosen profession and being in a service oriented field has really, really shaped my life and who I am, especially as an adult. I think that it sounds a little bit dark to talk about it, but to me, even though it's terribly sad, it doesn't feel dark. I would say that death and spirituality are another theme for me. There've been a couple of significant losses in my adult life. And I remember even some of my early losses as a high schooler and, um, my first sort of encounters with death and how I metabolize those and how I metabolize death now. And I feel like the experiences I've had, uh, grieving, you know, people who have, left has really blown open some things in terms of spirituality that probably the little girl who was raised in a Lutheran church never would have entertained Mm -hmm. as part of her reality. Are the ladybugs part of that? Yeah. Yeah. The project was born out of combating depression after a death. I was in such a dark place 
that I decided I needed to do something to try and train my eyes to see things that were good because I could feel myself spiraling. And so I started taking pictures and writing about them. And the whole ladybug thing is connected. So I think traditionally ladybugs are looked on as like good luck omen or something like that. But for me, it's definitely a hello from the other side. Sometimes I feel like in addition to the hello, it's kind of this, you know, reminder that, you know, we're, we're held and there's so much more than we can see. And, um, it's okay that it's not all in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's not of God. That's going to be pretty controversial. Yeah. Which is, I think, part of why I was hesitating to yeah. even speak it. But I'm a know, little surprised to hear you say that, given how spiritual, like how like rooted in my faith. Yes, how yeah. rooted in your faith you are. Yeah, yeah. I feel like for me, um, what is biblical is there and is everything that we need to know but it's not everything that there is. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way bigger picture than what we see from that scripture. So it's just kind of like gravy that I'm getting a little, a little extra peek at that, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe that, maybe that's part of what makes life extraordinary is that I feel like I have this tiny window into and I won't pretend to understand it or have a full grasp on it. I mean, it's so much bigger than it's so much bigger. I just had this thought of the ladybugs and noticing, like training yourself to see the good things Mm -hmm. when you were going through that period of depression Mm -hmm. were like fine tuning and sharpening your empath skills. I think intuition and the ability to feel is just like anything you use it or you lose it. I could numb that stuff out a little bit and not use it. I think it was a happy accident that my project to try and keep myself from spiraling into deep, deep depression that summer was, it it probably did have the effect that you're saying. It probably did help make me more sensitive and make my eyes sharper to catching that stuff that I might otherwise just have missed because I wasn't tuned in or, or keyed in. So I don't think it created that ability. I think that ability was there for sure. For sure. Yeah. I think that project just sharpened, sharpened those skills and gave you a different schema for how to use those skills. Yeah, it just opened it opened new doors. Mm-hmm. So anyway, death, death, <laughs> yes. And then the uh, third thing I would say would be a theme of heartbreak, mm-hmm. which I hate to say, and it sounds Why? there's a it's your story. It is, but there's a part of me that feels like, oh gosh, you know, like that just sounds so like, but I mean, it's true. I've had some significant heartbreaks. Um, a good handful of them have been romantic heartbreaks that really did 
I think shape how I function in the world mm-hmm. and for sure how I engage with other people and what I believe about life and love and relationships. And one of my other heartbreaks was um, the severing of my parents' marriage when I was 18 years old. Um, they separated and subsequently divorced. And for me, that was, I mean, really earth shattering. Um, the further I get away from it, the more I look back on that time and really see it as a pivot point in my life. It's like, you know how, well, we were just talking about the Bible, you know how there's like BC and AD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's BD and AD Mm. before divorce and after divorce. And there's a substantial difference, um, in me and in my outlook on the world from that experience. And I think part of the reason it was so big for me was because I really didn't see it coming. I, you know, my parents did not have a highly conflictual marriage or it was in no way really evident. I guess I can't speak for my sister, but it was no way evident to me that our family was at risk of that kind of tragedy really. And, um, I mean, my friends used to call my parents ward in June, you know, it was, like a joke classic. Yeah. American marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And we had a really Norman Rockwell kind of face on things. And it really was that way. I I mean, it really, really was up until it wasn't. And then when it wasn't, I was completely upside down. Did you see things in hindsight after your parents got divorced that you were like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I did. Um, not to take away from being completely blindsided when it happened though. Yeah, no, I think I think you start putting puzzle pieces together and several years after they split up when I was still really really struggling, I got into my own counseling and through that work kind of put some pieces together too to make things make a little bit more sense. But at the time it felt very shocking. It was like the world broke open and swallowed me. Yeah. I wish I could have known you pre-parent divorce. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That's actually something that I really, um, grieve. And I, I, uh, people are probably going to think this is so nuts, but I, I lot. So I was with someone, um, and it's one of my main heartbreaks. Uh, we were together the the end of my high school and through college. And, um, I really thought that we were going to get married. I mean, that was our, that was our plan. And I remember particularly around the stuff with my parents being so grateful that he knew me before my life was complicated in that way. And I felt like when I lot, when that, when I lost that relationship and I lost it in a pretty tragic way, there was, um, there was some pretty intense betrayal. Um, and so it was, it was deeply, deeply heartbreaking to me. But when I lost that relationship, I remember like not just being sad about him and not just being sad about what we were losing, but it was almost like I was losing a thread to my family too, because he was, he was the only person that I could marry who would know me. Yeah. BD. So that was a, that was a huge loss. It was an additional loss. 
What are you going to teach us today? I think I will talk a little bit more about heartbreak and, and then I'll try to get to the all I know. I think, God, this is so uncomfortable to say when you think about, like, Oh, I can't wait to hear it. Whose ears, <laughs> whose ears is this going to fall on? There so have been someone that needs to hear it. There have been a handful of times in, in my life since I was 18 where I thought I was going to die from sadness and it wasn't just feeling like I was so sad that my heart would break and it would kill me. It was that darker version of like, maybe I will end this. Mm. And I guess what I want to say or what I think is so important for people to know, like something that I've earned through this path that I walked where I, I lost I lost my family in the way that I knew it. And all of those relationships had to be renegotiated in the wake of my parents split. And that was hard work. And to be honest, in some ways it's still going. My sister and I talk all the time about how we're still paying for that decision. And it's been 22 years. So as long as my parents were married, they have now been apart and it still costs us. So that, and then going to this relationship, you know, where I thought I was going to marry this person and having that relationship end in a sudden way and an unexpected way and, and tragically for me, and then trying to kind of bounce back from that and, you know, rebuild a life. Like for me, if you think, if you think back to what we were talking about success earlier and, and what I said about if I was telling you what success meant 22 years ago, you know, that picture is American dream white picket fence. And I was a young woman in my early twenties and my family had fallen apart. And the man that I thought I was going to marry and build a life with was no longer a part of the picture. And I felt like I was left standing there with nothing, trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do? How am I possibly going to make a life out of, out of this? And I had to start really hustling on what's plan B because plan A is not freaking happening. There is no version of plan A that is happening anywhere in the near future. So you better figure it out. I started crafting that plan B, which has to do mostly with my career. But all that time, as I was trying to heal and come back from those losses and those heartbreaks, I still wanted plan A. I just thought maybe it would happen on a different time frame. And then there were two other relationships that were serious. One um, in my late 20s up until right before my 30th birthday. And then another when I was 33 until I was about 35. That relationship lasted a couple of years. Anyway, both of those relationships also ended with heartbreak and there was a different kind of betrayal, a different kind of... In both of them? Yeah. Yeah. The one that ended right before I was 30, I think that person didn't really know what he wanted. 
I think I was caught up in being a part of like helping him find that and believing that it had something to do with me. Mm. And when it didn't, and he went pretty quickly from being with me and not wanting to get married or have children to getting married and having children with someone else that had an impact yeah. on me. I've definitely had this kind of, uh, was that the betrayal in that relationship? It was part of it. Um, there was, there was more, there was some behavior and patterns in, in, uh, his way of managing his world that are not things that I would tolerate now. But at the time I worked really hard to tolerate them because I loved him and wanted to have a relationship, but there was some addiction that was problematic and felt like a betrayal to me whenever that relapse would happen. Mm. Um, because there were, of course, never knew that part, lots of promises around, around all of that, that, you know, are promises that are hard to keep when you're stuck in that pattern. So, so yeah, there was some betrayal there. And then, um, the last relationship that disintegrated when I was 35, I mean, (laughs) crazy amounts of betrayal there. It's almost like it gets worse with every relationship. I managed to, you know, find someone who's going to, I hate to keep using the word betray, but like betray me even deeper, um, than the person before him. So I need to figure that out. I, I definitely have work to do there, I guess. I was say, there's definitely some patterns, some learnable moments there, huh? Yeah, which sucks. Yeah. I don't, I don't want it to be anything I'm doing. I want it to be all their faults. Who <laughs> <laughs> doesn't? I mean, nobody wants to think that they, like, play a role in that. But I think when we are talking about betrayal... It sucks because it always comes from a trusted source. It's yeah. not a stranger or an acquaintance that betrays you. Right. Right. It comes from somebody you've given your heart to, which is the whole reason it actually is a betrayal yeah. rather than something that just ticks you off. Yeah. And it cuts a lot deeper. And knowing you as well and as long as I have, you give everything in relationships. And you are willing to be so vulnerable once you've decided that you want to be with someone, whether it's a friend or a love interest that, you know, you go so deep that it opens you up to be betrayed and hurt. So just leveled. And I got leveled and I is so, I mean, it's so, it's so sad when I, you know, think back on these significant relationships because there were a couple of other like light and airy things, you know, that I like tried on for size that didn't end up being a match or whatever. But these relationships that were more significant that, that ended up kind of falling apart. It's like when you go all in, you do get leveled and that's part of the cost to going all in to living. Yeah. 
And I think I'm a person, maybe I'm learning something more about this. Like when I'm trying to, when I'm talking about trying to figure out how to spend my energy differently and sort of calibrate myself in situations differently, maybe that applies or would apply to, to a new relationship. How do I engage or spend myself or allow access to Mm. my soul, you know, differently because there have been three pretty big strikes (laughs) (laughs) and they all, they all cost a lot. Yeah. They were hard to come back from. And so I think like when you were asking, what's your, all I know, I think one of the things that I want to be able to say to someone is that if you've had your heart broken, even if it's not a romantic heartbreak, like it doesn't matter what the heartbreak is, but if you've had a heartbreak where you feel like it might kill you, you might not be able to breathe anymore. And you don't know that the human body has that many tears. Like you can come back from it. You can, you will feel like it should be over. You will feel like you want it to be over. You will feel like it'd be better if it was over, but it's not there. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so cliche, but it's that thing about the sun coming up tomorrow. And I really think that if you do the work in terms of leaving yourself open to healing and trying to be creative with how you support yourself in those times and resource yourself in those times, you can heal. You won't die. You might think you are, but you won't. And I guess, I guess that's the thing I want to say. I love that. That's so true and empowering. Have you healed from your heartaches and betrayals? I think it's such a mixed bag and it probably would depend on what kind of measuring stick we're using, right? Like if the measuring stick is, Oh, Jen, are you in a happy, healthy, thriving, loving relationship? No, I haven't healed. But if the measuring definition of healing though, no, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying is I think that you can look at it a zillion different ways. I think it's a, a prism you can turn. So if the measuring stick is, have you used your heartbreak for something good? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Have you gotten up in the morning on days when you didn't want to and you didn't think you could get out of bed? Yes, I have. Have you taken the medicine? Yes. Have you gone to the doctor? Yes. Have you gotten to a place where you didn't need those things anymore because the shades lifted? Yes. You know what I mean? So I think it depends on what's the definition of healing do I still carry those scars and those marks? Absolutely. I wish that I didn't sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I'm really odd, odd, like a W E D about the way that people go from one relationship to another. And social media actually is probably made me more privy but sometimes I I will see something happening for someone that I am acquainted with 
I assume that it's going to take them years to come back, but it never, (laughs) never does take them years to come back. So I think I'm wired a little differently than maybe some of those folks that I'm watching and kind of definitely marveling at because you're you. Yeah. I, but I wish, but I, yeah. And I think all of that's a factor, right? But I didn't know that at the time, of course, because you're not just feeling this as a breakup. You're feeling this as a breakup times a thousand because you have so many more antenna up receiving information. It's like, Oh, okay. If I'd understood that about myself, maybe I would have come through those seasons a little bit faster than I did. I think I managed the last one in terms of like coming back from the sadness. I think I managed that better. I feel like I had grown still pretty disappointed could definitely access the anger around it. I was going to say, I feel like the amount of anger that rightfully came out of that situation was a great um, accelerator at helping you to come out of that. Yeah, helping me move through it. And I think I had maturity. I had more Mm -hmm. maturity on my side, right? When you're 35 and coping with something like that, it's very different than when you're 23. For sure. So anyway, all I know is, you might feel like life is going to kill you or that you want to kill you because of life. But it doesn't have to be that way. Keep going. There's something in there that is a teacher and there's something in there that you can learn from. And there's something in there that even if it sucks for you so, so badly, you can turn it and help it be good for someone else. Because everybody has pain. Everybody has hardship. And part of how we survive that and get through it is by being able to know that we're not alone. So even if all that happens with your pain is you communicate to someone else that you get it, there's some redemption there. Mm -hmm. Are you at peace with your betrayals? Oh, so now it, it was, have you healed? And now it's, are you at peace? I don't know that I can answer that question fairly. I feel like I'm supposed to say yes. Well, we don't want to hear what you're supposed to say. No, I know. But I just, I feel like I'm supposed to say, yes, I am. And, but I don't know if that's a real authentic answer. I mean, this microphone is sitting in front of me. My heart is going a million miles a minute because I'm thinking about who's going to hear what that I've said and what they'll think about it. I'm thinking about my clients and people that I they work with who don't know these things about me and how will they metabolize that information? So I I feel like I'm supposed to say yes, but I think I'm too, I'm too like discombobulated and too charged right now to be able to give an answer that I could say with any integrity. Yes or no. Okay. If you could wave a magic wand and go back in time and make those betrayals not happen. Would you do that? I think I I would not wave a magic wand and um, change all of it. It's almost like I would have to look at those, those four kind of big ones in isolation. Hands down. If I could wave a magic wand and put my parents together in a happy, healthy marriage. Yes. 
there, I would change that in a heartbeat. You don't even have to ask me twice. Um, do I think that's possible in this lifetime? No. So I'm a, I'm a realist about that. I think I probably wouldn't change the betrayals or the circumstances of those relationships because obviously those people are not what God had for me, right? That's not where I'm supposed to land. So, okay. But if I had a magic wand, would I change some things about the way those situations went down? Yeah, I probably would. I probably would try and spare myself a little bit of suffering in hindsight. I think there's a part of me that feels like, yeah, you can still learn the lesson. It doesn't have to hurt quite that bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> so cut down the, the pain by X percent and you still get the benefit of whatever you learned. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely use the magic wand to expose some things sooner mm. so that there wasn't shortened the timeline. Yeah, totally. Particularly in, um, the relationship that ended it when I was 30 and the relationship that ended when I was 35, I would do timeline magic wand stuff on that. Like nobody's <laughs> You're like, let's just cut to the chase and be done with these yeah. relationships. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. You're all I know. Well, it doesn't mean that I won't be that sad again. I might be that sad again. But having been that sad a handful of times and not dying, I know I can be that sad and not die. And I I mean I I remember like mentally coaching myself when I felt that sad. It was like you're not going to die. You've been here before. And you didn't die. So you just got to ride this wave. It will pass and do your work. You know, show up for yourself, but you're not going to die. You do feel things so intensely and you do not ever filter, inhibit, build up a wall, use any sort of compensatory strategy like anger or denial or distance to mute or soften or try to protect yourself you're always authentically engaged. I definitely think from my experiences, I've probably learned to defend myself a little bit with men emotionally. Like I'm, I'm scared and I'm careful and I'm not so easy to trust as I was. So those defenses are there, but in terms of the emotion and the engagement and feeling you're totally right. Like I, 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 it's almost like, I don't know how to not speak that language. Right. And you definitely, like it don't. feels like physically impossible for me. Like if it's happening, it's happening. So let's acknowledge it and figure it out mm-hmm. because I can't, I, I'm not good at hiding where I'm at. I don't have a very good poker face when it comes to like what I'm, what I'm feeling. If what I'm feeling is big, you're probably gonna get a big reaction. You're probably yeah. gonna, you know, have a window to that because I'm not good at making it seem like I'm okay if I'm not okay. Yeah. You know what else you don't do? Oh, geez. I don't ever see you have compassion fatigue. <laughs> or you're, or you hide it. I mean, I mean, I'm. I've never been a client of yours, but like, see, like knowing you personally, I've never 
seen you have compassion fatigue with people, which I think is crazy. It's like you have never ending amounts of patience to be genuinely emotionally engaged with the people that you love. That well does run pretty deep for me. And I don't think that it's about me. I think it's about God. But I will say compassion fatigue is very real. And if that's not something you see in me, I'm glad. I've never seen it in you. But it is a constant battle. Professionally or in general? I would say professionally because... Professionally, it's a choice I'm making to engage in a service role. Mm-hmm. With my friends and family, I feel more compelled. Doesn't feel as much like a choice. Like you have. It's to. Like I love you, so I got to figure it out. But I think. Do you ever feel resentful about that? <laughs> what the hell are you I'm doing? I'm curious. Like, cut it. You can write down the time. We cut it out. <laughs> Can we talk about that over dinner instead of over the podcast? Yep. Sorry. Sorry, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think it feels with my friends, I can't help myself. And maybe sometimes I should. And probably my family is the only people that have been like, you didn't show up for me and you should have. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they feel that way. We've never talked about it. You think your family might feel that way? I think it's possible. I think it's possible that, you know, they could be like, you really didn't come through for me at such and such a time. And they would probably say, because you were so focused on work. Hmm. And I do think that my personal life is often shortchanged because of my professional life. Because I'll pour out so much of myself in my work that I don't sometimes have a lot left to give sure to myself or to the people that I love the most expected professional hazard. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it may be part of the reason that I'm still single, you know, like maybe that's part of the dynamic at play. Are you happy? Sometimes. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. I love that. Let's do the Bernard Pivot question. Okay. That you do with all of your interviewees. Yeah, it's totally my dream to have James Lipson ask, so you're a good stand-in for Oh, thanks. <laughs> sure. I don't have a mustache or a beard like that. That's okay. No worries. I'll take it. What's your favorite word? At this moment in time... Finished. Finished. Yeah. Interesting. That idea that something is done and you don't have to keep working on it. Mm. Like it's finished. It's complete. To me, yes, that is what I want. What's your least favorite word? Please. Please? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because... I'm already going to do it for you. And if you say please, it just makes me feel guilty. (laughs) It's kind of a passive aggressive word when you think about it. 
yeah, I don't know why that like floated up for me today, but <laughs> please, it did. Please, did like, just don't. Today? I don't know, but just don't please say. Tell us. Just don't. Ugh, <laughs> just don't say please to me right now. Like, just don't. Maybe because it feels like asking for something else. It's like the nicest way to be like, I'm just going to pluck another thing of fruit from you. Mm. Like make another demand on you. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's why I don't like please at the moment. I'll probably change my mind by the time this airs. What turned you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Yeah. Um, time to give to my creative pursuits, Mm. writing, photography, music, I'm not a, I'm not a crazy, awesome musician, but I love to sing. And when I'm making music, that's probably the happiest I can ever be. So that stuff is like ecstasy to just do that stuff, to make art. What turned you off? Someone who is not interested in participating in their own healing. And has an expectation that that will be served to them. What's your favorite curse word? Oh, definitely the F-bomb. Yeah. I would say it. I just drop it too much. It's just so (laughs) embarrassing. In fact, I was in a meeting at my 9 to 5 today and I caught myself. But I was feeling pretty passionate about the subject and out she came. (laughs) A couple times. What sound or noise do you love? When my nephew says my name. And I think in time I'll probably add my niece too, but she's, she's not saying my name yet. She's still too young, but truly one of the happiest sounds that just lights me up from the inside out is when he's like Tita. I love that. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, (laughs) this is so embarrassing to say, but when you're sleeping and you wake yourself up with a snore, like I had a, (laughs) I had a picture of God, where were my mom and I coming back from? (laughs) My mom and I were coming back from somewhere on an international flight. And of course it's so much worse when you're, you know, sitting up in an airplane chair, (laughs) but I have a distinct memory of, Making making a sound. I was like so tired and I and I woke myself up with that sound and it was just I at the time I was like, I don't even care. I'm so tired. It doesn't even matter. But in retrospect, when you asked what sound do you hate, I was thinking of the sound that I made when I woke myself up on that plane. <laughs> that makes me giggle just thinking about it because I can picture I was waiting and like, did you make the noise or did your mom make the noise? No, I made the noise, (laughs) which is worse because then it's embarrassing too, you know, then you're like kind of hating on yourself for making the noise where if someone else makes it, you just laugh at them and think they're hilarious. I didn't think it was very funny. Was it loud? To me it was, but I don't know if it was loud to like my seatmates or whatever. I don't know if other people could hear me. I guess, thank God that the plane is really loud. The motors and stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. Airplanes are the last place on earth where you can, it's like your bathroom. Like everyone treats it like their bathroom. Like they do all kinds of stuff. Oh my gosh. 
on an airplane. I literally sat next, next to someone who clipped their toenails <laughs> during <laughs> airplane? the flight. I was having, How did they have enough room to like bend over and reach they their They were toenails? really skinny and they pulled their knee up on the seat. And, <laughs> oh my gosh. It was disgusting. Did the clippings like fly out and like hit you? I don't remember any clippings hitting me, but they were not being careful about catching the clippings. And I'm sorry, by the time you have your toenail clippers out on the plane, we have a problem catching the clippings or not. (laughs) So I digress, but there you go. That's my least favorite sound at the moment. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) What profession would you not like to do? Anything in sanitation. Wow. That was a really quick answer. Well. And I think I skipped the other one. What profession? I, f- I skipped it's me. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I mean, I think I kind of already said it because I said that I wanted James Lipton to ask me the questionnaire. From a very young age, I really wanted to be an actor. And I think that'd be totally fantastic if I if I was. So if I was changing gigs and had the ability to do so, I would, I would try acting. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Yeah. So it, it will be a familiar hello because it's not like odd or surprising that we're seeing each other. And then for sure, I would really hope you're going to love it here because it's like safari all the time. What does that mean? What is safari like? I took a trip to Africa with my mom for my 40th birthday. And I just really, really loved the experience. So it was like seeing new things and being thrilled and being excited and having anticipation and just joy, just kind of pure unfiltered joy. So I hope heaven is like safari. This was fun. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears. And we couldn't do that without you. Please remember that all of the opinions, ideas, information, and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting, please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention, nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's Jess, J-E-S-S, dot all I know at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen, for all of us here at the show, reminding you, catch all the light you can.